You are listening to You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. everyone and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasse and I am your host and along with our producer Alex Diaz who is in the booth across from me, we'd like to welcome you to our show. Good morning, Alex. Yes, good morning, Kathy and good morning to our listeners. How was your week? My week? It's it's sort of flown by. Flown by? Well, I'm, I'm talking Tuesday to Tuesday. I know yeah, it's, yeah, no, it, it, it's been quite eventful. Um, it, it was this uh, past weekend... Well, more, more cooking? More cooking. Yeah, I, oh, I, 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 I baked some cookies, but I'm not as impressed as as I was the first time I made them. I made some changes. I tried the cookies just with brown sugar, and uh, they didn't color as nicely as I anticipated. Oh, look and, at you! But uh, I did. I did have. I did bring some today. So you I, did I, or did not? I did. Ah, okay. Yeah. So we get to taste them. So we get to taste them. Yes. Awesome. And oh. so, any any uh, any listeners out there who are aspiring uh, cooks and chefs, I I do. Now, uh, strongly encourage you to get started as best you can, even if it's um, pouring cake mix out of a box to get started. That's what I did this this weekend as well. I, I kind of cheated, but you got to get started somewhere. Started in the kitchen. That, that's your right. It's the first place to start. Better than, uh, well, at least you know the ingredients that are going into them, even if they're from the box. Great way to start, though. Get started in the kitchen and doing something that you love. Exactly. Okay. We're getting close to the end of the summer. The Commercials are coming on for the exhibition. My son is coming home from a six-week trip. Don't so, forget the back-to-school ads. Uh, and the back-to-school ads. I, I find it bittersweet. I, I absolutely love the summer, and I think we've had a fantastic summer. So I'm, I'm sad when I hear those uh, welcome to the X or let's go to the X uh, commercials. But again, you know what? It's been a wonderful summer, so how do we complain? Our show today is live. Our number is 416-245-1534. You can find us on all the um, social platforms, uh, especially Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the Health Hub RMC. You can email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. Anytime you have any questions, we're still taking questions for today's show, which has garnered quite a bit of, of interest. Our podcasts are on uh, SoundCloud. They are on iTunes. You can also find them on Radio Maria's website, which is www.radiomaria.ca. And you can find them on my website, which is kathybiasse.com. They are on all the social platforms. So just Google the Health Hub and you will find us for sure. Now let's talk quickly. We have a real big show today. We've had lots of people call in or not call in yet, but uh, email and questions to us. So I want to make sure we leave plenty of time. This is the second part of two parts of a dementia series. But before we get into that, I read an article briefly, which brought me back to um, the very simple uh, seed 
of flaxseed, the simple flaxseed seed. Hard to say that. I was trying to practice it. Mm-hmm. Still didn't come out well, but it did. Uh, it's okay. No, if, <laughs> if you didn't say anything, it would have just flown. It would have just by, flown right by. Okay. Thanks so, for your honesty. I'm sure our, our listeners yeah, do appreciate that. Live so. radio. Anyway. What, are, what are you going to do? Yeah. So flaxseed, let's start there. I have, um, this is something that I incorporate into smoothies, but you know, you, you, you know, all this information, but sometimes it just, you know, you can't translate. And actually I find, um, I am doing that timed eating. So I have an eight hour eating window and I find sometimes it's, it's difficult to get in everything that I need to. So uh, just reading this article, it brought me back home to all the wonderful, wonderful, uh, nutrient values, dietary, um, just great contributions that flaxseed can make to your overall health. It truly is a superfood and it's a superfood that really is only pennies a day if you want to use it. Flaxseeds are very high in fiber. They are a rich source of plant omega-3s and minerals and they are one of the greatest, if not the greatest natural source of a polyphenol called lignans. And when we consume flax seeds, the bacteria in our gut converts, uh, con- converts these plant lignans into human form lignans, which have a weak estrogenic activity. And for women who have high levels of estrogen, have uh, estrogen dominance, as it may be called, these lignans can bind to some of your estrogen receptor sites and with that, uh, the effect is uh, reducing, actually, total estrogen activity. Uh, conversely, because of this estrogen activity, postmenopausal women, um, they may find this very beneficial for bone health. So as, as we age, our estrogen actually naturally decreases, and the, the phytoestrogenic activity is wonderful for bone health. So... Um, it's, it's, it is something of real, real value to put in our diet. And again, this is just habit forming. Um, but to move beyond the estrogenic uh, value of, well, I guess probably this is inclusive in the estrogenic value of the flaxseed, is research has shown that flaxseeds may help to lower cholesterol and have a positive um, influence on heart health. And estrogen actually does have an impact on heart health, on our arteries, on the malleability of the arteries. So um, as I said, for pennies a day, including these into your diet is very, very worthwhile. Now, ideally, you want to start off using the full seed and grind it. So if you're u- using it in a smoothie, um, the blender will grind it for you. But if you are not using it in a smoothie and want to use it elsewhere, I use a coffee grinder, which uh, works out just fine. Now, that being said, you know, it's like when you're juicing, people just can't get over um, and my, me included, you know, it is a lot of work to juice and to clean and everything. So instead of forsaking the seeds because they're too much effort, uh, buying them uh, ground already, um, you know, that is, is a way of using them. The, the value of keeping the whole seed first and then grinding it right before you use it is you're protecting all those valuable nutrients and oil. But again, um, if you are just trying to start off to, to incorporate flaxseed into your diet, use the oil, use the ground flaxseed. And if you're a real gamer, do grind them ahead of time. Now you can use them in many, many different things. They kind of have a kind of flaxseed has a sort of a nutty flavor to it. Um, again, you need to grind them because they're hard to digest. So, uh, you can sprinkle flaxseed on smoothies. You can sprinkle on your salads, uh, on top of yogurt, all great ways. What I've started doing, um, recently is putting a tablespoon into water overnight and I will uh, eat that the next day. So one to two tablespoons is ideal. Uh, for your better health. 
So there you go. Hopefully that is something new for you. Um, when I find these tidbits, I like to bring them back home, especially when I'm reminded myself of, of all the, the benefits of things. I like to bring them forward to you. So as I mentioned earlier, this is the second part of our topic on dementia. Last week's show with Dr. Sue Griffin entitled The Breakthrough Research in Early Detection and Treatment of Alzheimer's Disease is up as a podcast. It's garnering some um, very good listenership and lots of questions. And today we are dealing with the overall topic of dementia. And our guest today is Dr. Kenneth Rockwood, and he is a professor of medicine, geriatric and neurology at Dalhousie and an active staff physician at Queen Elizabeth II Health Sciences Center. He is also the Dalhousie Medical Research Foundation, Catherine Allen Weldon, professor of Alzheimer research at Dalhousie University. A native of Newfoundland, he received his MD from Memorial University and completed internal medicine training at the University of Alberta and geriatric medicine at Dalhousie University. A leading authority on frailty, Dr. Kenneth Rockwood is more, has more than 450 peer-reviewed publications and nine books to his credit, including the eighth edition of Brocklehurst Textbook of Geriatric Medicine and Gerontology. He is Associate Director of the Canadian Collaboration on Neurodegeneration and Aging and leads its Quality of Life theme and Knowledge Translation platform. Today's learning points will be, can dementia be prevented or delayed? Why must we look at a whole body approach to fighting dementia? And how can we use our understanding of epigenetics to alter the course of dementia? So when we come back, we will talk with Dr. Kenneth Rockwood. That the Lord of all the earth Would care to know my name Would care to feel my hurt Who am I That the bright and morning star Would choose to light the way For my ever-wandering heart Not because of who I am but because of what you've done Not because of what I've done But because of who you are I am a flower quickly fading Here today and gone tomorrow A wave tossed in the ocean You catch me when I'm falling And you've told me who I am I am yours I am yours Who am I That the eyes that see my sin me rise again Who am I that the voice that calmed the sea would call out through the rain and calm the storm in me Not because of who I am 
But because of what you've done Not because of what I've done But because of who you are I am a flower quickly fading Here today and gone tomorrow A wave tossed in the ocean Because of what you've done Not because of what I've done But because of who are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody, and welcome, Dr. Rockwood, to the show. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be with us this morning. Thank you. I think perhaps where we should start is making, a clear, making it clear for everybody um, the understanding of what dementia is. Sure. So, uh Dementia is a condition, a syndrome. Uh, it's defined by uh, two major things. One is cognitive impairment, and the second one is impairment that's severe enough to interfere with social or occupational functioning. So by the cognitive impairment, we mean problems with memory, problems with thinking, problems with language, calculation, attention, concentration, a host of things like that. It's not just a single uh, feature, such as poor memory, which becomes more common as people get older. Rather, it's uh, um, um, several of these, and it's non-trivial. It actually interferes with functioning. And I think people, the non-memory part, I think a lot of people do hone on, and it, uh, it puts the, the fear in them. Um, what, you know, and I know some of the testing uh, focuses a lot on memory, so I was wondering maybe if you could go through some rudimentary testing that is done to, to diagnose dementia, or are there standard tests that are put out there for people? Sure. So there are standard tests. Um, there are short screening tests, and there are more detailed uh, sets of cognitive tests, right up to neuropsychological test batteries that take a few hours to do. But mostly in the setting of a memory clinic, uh, we take about half an hour doing a series of standardized tests, which would uh, test things like, do you know where you are? Do you know... Uh, the day and the date, and so on. Can you remember a word list and recall it a few minutes afterwards? Can you pay attention? Can you pay attention in the face of a distracting stimulus? 
um, how many words can you uh, list with a certain name, how many uh, animals, for example, could you name, and a bunch of things like that. We also test uh, visual memory, drawing, and uh, the interpretation of tasks which require some standardized problem solving. So I'm assuming that it's symptomology that would drive someone in to, to do these testings? For the most part, in a memory clinic, we often see people who come from families in which there is a history of dementia and people are concerned about what their particular risk might be. But 95% or more of the patients that we see would come in because they have symptoms or because someone believes they have symptoms. Okay, you hit, you hit on family history, and I do want to come back around to that. But again, I think another key point is um, differenti- differentiating dementia from Alzheimer's and perhaps listing um, other diseases within the dementia sphere. Because I know personally when my dad um, was diagnosed as having dementia, I thought it was Alzheimer's, and I had to do a little bit of studying and, and research to, to understand that that's not necessarily the fact. Sure. So dementia is the big category, and it has many causes, of which Alzheimer's disease is a common cause. On a population basis, though, and this is a point worth underscoring, on a population basis, dementia mostly occurs in older adults, particularly over the age of um, 75, and Uh, when it happens, there's typically more than one cause. So other causes would be uh, vascular causes, such as stroke or stroke-like syndromes, and then a bunch of neurodegenerative causes, um, such as there's diseases, uh, a class of disorders called the frontotemporal dementias, uh, and then there's something else called Lewy body dementia, and so on. So there's, there's quite a whack of them, but for the most part, it boils down to about a half dozen things that we concern ourselves with. Well, with that understanding that, you know, the, the large score of dementia is in the older population, um, it, you know, people have this, this vast understanding that this is an aging disease, but are you seeing dementia striking in earlier individuals? So where I work, we have a memory clinic that, Uh, gets referrals from a lot of other memory clinics. So we will look at uh, uh, families in whom the dementia can come on very early, sometimes uh, for certain types and people even in their late 20s. But even so, that's only a small minority of the patients that we see. Even late-onset dementias with a family history that is present in at least two people in at least two generations, which is the research definition for a late-onset inherited dementia, that's still only a small proportion of the people that we see. So, so uh, most dementia occurs with or without a family history in late life. And the dilemma in trying to understand the heritability of any illness in late life is that we need to distinguish between the genes and other factors that would have, in the first instance, allowed the person to live to an old age, and then within that context, the factors that would have given rise potentially to dementia. So it's complicated. And you're bringing up in a roundabout way, I'm thinking, is the topic of epigenetics. Um, and what, what, what really interests me about your work, um, a lot of people 
they don't see anything positive um, when with these diagnoses. There hasn't been a lot of research on the curative aspects of it. If I'm not, you know, if I'm not mistaken, and please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it's it's a disease that people it, it frightens people a lot. So your study uh, with with a number, I think twenty twenty four other people or twenty three other people uh, scientists, one in three dementia cases are potentially preventable opens wide the door for people to look at whole health. And this is what I really want to focus on, is giving people an understanding that, um, you know, within genetics, there may be things you can do. But maybe, can you give us a um, sort of a backdrop as to why you went down this path and, and what you have discovered? Sure. So the paper that you're referring to was... Uh, um a, a, a whole issue of The Lancet, uh, and it was commissioned by The Lancet um, editors, and the goal was to bring together the information that could be uh, usefully assembled and communicated to people about what might be done to prevent dementia. So we'll come back to that in a second. I just want to touch on the first thing you said with, about not much effort on curative research or curative approaches. And really, that's not the case. It's a case there's been very little successful research on okay. it, at, at least in terms of what we could do today. And it does pre- present a dilemma to the way in which we think about Alzheimer's disease and how it might be treated. So a huge amount of effort has gone into looking at single protein abnormalities that are associated with uh, dementia, both when it happens early on or associated with Alzheimer's disease, both when it happens you know, in young people and then when it happens as it most commonly does in very old people. The dilemma that we have and where there is a, a fair amount of heated debate amongst intelligent people of goodwill, right? There's no one who doesn't want to cure Alzheimer's, but there's a lot of debate about the appropriateness of a focus on um, single protein abnormalities. And... Um, what happened right now is that because single protein abnormalities are beguiling in the sense that the thought is, well, if this thing goes awry and we fix it or change it in some way, maybe we can make things better. Um, because of that immense focus, there's a concern, and that was shared by the authors of the Lancet Commission report. There was concern that the many other things that might be done now and very much in the meantime before we wait you know, for the magic cure um, have received insufficient attention. So really what we did in this publication was to try and draw to attention in a broader way how prevention might work and what the prospects for prevention might be. So that's the backdrop to it. There is a controversy, I'm not really dealing with that. We're going to look at uh, what do we know other than an approach based on a single protein abnormality giving rise to everything we see in late life dementia. And this can be approaches that we can all use in our daily lives. Now, um, I think I think again I want to I want to clarify as well. We've got a genetic component versus a, a degenerative component. And when you're talking about the cardiovascular aspect of dementia, it almost it, it seems that it it can be a path that we can look at as a preventative with a whole life, whole body approach. Is that, is that correct in saying? 
Yeah, that's a, a good way to think about it, that what's good for the heart, all the things we've learned about uh, prevention of heart disease, turns out to be good for the brain as well. And we can come back to that in a second. So let's just uh, get at the issue of the genes. So up until a few years ago, it was really straightforward. There was um, there were four genetic variants, sort of one variant and three abnormalities, uh, which gave rise to Alzheimer's disease. Three mostly at an earlier age, and one which predisposed people uh, when they were much older, in their seventies and older, <coughs> uh, to get Alzheimer's disease. So that's gotten much more complicated in the last seven years when we've become aware of, of literally dozens of other genes which act. But it's interesting, they don't act on their own, they act chiefly in combination. So when we wrote the Lancet Commission report, an early statement from that was, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. And, and the second statement was, be ambitious. So it seems that um, if ideas like what's good for the heart or good for the brain work, they work because they're acting on more than one gene and they're acting on more than one gene product. And so I think that pragmatically, for the most part, what we've said for a long time about late-onset dementia and genes seems true. So that's to say that there, that if you have a mother or a father or a brother or a sister who develops dementia in late life, that just about doubles your risk to get dementia. Um, the risk is very high in people who have a particular abnormality called apolipoprotein E, which is not really an abnormality, it's, it's a characteristic way in which the apolipoprotein gene can exist. It can exist in a few states, and one of the uh, E states that it exists in is four. And if you've got two copies of four, then the risk is very much higher. But most people with dementia don't have that. So, so we know there's a lot of things that are going on, and we know that you can't fix your genes. So the starting point is, from a prevention standpoint, to look at things that, are, that could happen across the life course that might allow you to modify your individual risk. And pleasingly, it turns out that, for the most part, the things that would let you have a good life are also things that would be associated with a lower risk of dementia. So if you've been healthy all your life, if you've been socially engaged all your life, if you've been well-educated, if you've um, led a life with a certain degree of intellectual stimulation, all those things appear to be uh, protective, even for people who carry the ApoE4 gene. Uh, In contrast, too much smoking, too much drinking, not enough sleep, uh, too much stress and worry, being obese, being physically inactive, other factors along those lines, you know, not doing all the things your mother told you, uh, those are things which, as a group, uh, very much increase the risk of getting dementia in late life. I think a key thing to know, and something where it pains to point out in the memory clinic, when we see uh, a parent in their 70s with dementia, is to spend time talking to them, but then turn to the daughter or son who might be in the room with them and point out that they're at the right age. Middle age is the time at which you really want to engage as much as you can in the healthy lifestyle because it looks like a lot of things that happen down the line, they're set up by what happens in middle age. 
Okay. Now that's a perfect spot for us to take a quick break because I read something very interesting in your study about um, early education, which uh, I would like to come back to too. And we're going to sort of talk about bringing this scientifically as well as lifestyle component all into circle and and really help you as listeners to um, lead a life that is sort of protective against dementia. So we'll be back in a couple of minutes.
You are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada. A Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, please call 416-245-1534. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We are talking with Dr. Kenneth Rockwood about dementia. Dr. Rockwood, we've had the same question asked in a just slightly different way come in several times here. So I want to ask this question to you. Um, Is there a higher tendency in men or women? And what are the first key symptoms when you are looking at dementia? That's two questions. Sorry about that. (laughs) Yeah, so the the first question, uh, it looks like women are more likely to get dementia. There's a couple things that are operating here. Number one is that age is the most potent risk for dementia, and more women live to be an older age. And the second one uh, is that uh, there also appears to be an increase that's associated with being female. Now, that component seems smaller than the first part, which is that there's more women who are living to a very old age to begin with. So these are, are active areas of inquiry, but as a general proposition, it's non-controversial that more women get dementia than men. Okay, and key first symptoms that you would have so people? That, so that's a really good question. So memory is important, but it's not bad to have a bad memory if your judgment is good and if your initiative is good and if you can make decisions that are appropriate and if you can compensate and if you have insight and awareness. So part of the dilemma that we've got is that memory impairment is reasonably common. Subjective memory complaint is reasonably common. Uh, But what makes this into dementia is when all this begins to impact on function. And for two people of the same degree of memory impairment, the person with the better insight, judgment, social conduct, ability to remember, um, to prompt themselves, they will generally do better. So, so memory is important, but it's a very nonspecific symptom. And as a general rule, um, efforts that have tried to screen for dementia by screening for impaired memory have not met with success because it's, it's so common and quite nonspecific. Okay. Now, in your study, um, something that I've, I found was very interesting, um, and this, I believe, is an excerpt from it. It's, uh, this might even be your excerpt. It's thought that cognitive and other boosts of education to help establish more nerve connections between synapses in the brain, helping to build up a reserve that resists as we age. Um, I found that very interesting. So you're talking about stimulating the brain as a preventative measure for dementia. Yeah, so it's like everything else. There's a thousand footnotes here. The general proposition, as it says in the Gospel of Matthew, to them have much more shall be given. So if you start off with a big brain, you're likely going to do better with respect to the things that you would do to stimulate yourself. So people who are more intelligent are more likely to seek out intellectual stimulation. So it's a, it's a self-reinforcing cycle, a virtuous cycle. Um, the idea about whether brain games, for example, will improve cognition is controversial. There are many people who very strongly believe that it won't because they believe it doesn't translate into everyday life. 
but the basis by which they believe it doesn't translate into everyday life is if you do very well with neuropsych test A, you might not do any better on other tests other than test A, but how that translates into everyday life is not readily inferred by neuropsychological test performance. And we lack the studies that help us understand better about how brain training in general uh, would impact on daily function. We also don't understand how to do it best in relation to physical exercise. The thing will come back to that because that's the biggest takeaway from this. And we also don't understand uh, what the dose is and which type of uh, brain training might do best and so on. So, so, so as a general proposition, though, being socially engaged and then being socially engaged in stimulating conversation, intellectually stimulating conversation, uh, seems to have real benefit. So we're not talking here then about banking synapses. Um, we're talking about making pathways. So uh, I think what I'm trying to say to you in a roundabout way is you are not banking what we've learned and then that's strengthening our brain. We're having a stronger brain as we age. This is a continual process of stimulation, uh, birth to death. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I mean, there, there, there is some suggestion that what happens as we learn new things is that some of the uh, we hormones and brain chemicals that we release to help uh, consolidate what we learn to give it a physical basis in terms of the way the neurons behave, we have an excess of these other chemical signals. And what they can do is help strengthen the neighbors of those neurons to reinforce how the pathway pathways work. So there, there, there is some idea that, that you're expanding the number of synapses or expanding the number of pathways by which you might get at a particular piece of information. So, so uh, the way in which we think that education or mental stimulation works has to do with increase in brain activity and increase in the novel ways in which we learn something, in, in which we come at something new. So, for example, one of the things we understand is that as people get older, they get more expert in the things they're expert at. That's because they have developed, if you will, the scaffolding, a very elaborate and secure and strong scaffolding on which to hang a new piece of information. So when that comes on, it's easier for them to learn that. And if for some reason they had damage to the scaffolding, there's enough redundancy in it. There's enough additional ways to get from point A to point C without going through B that they're able to uh, perform uh, a particular task. Now, they may do it more slowly. On the other hand, doing it more slowly may have certain benefits to it. So, for example, I, I think in the general sense of that we can distinguish between cleverness, which is very quick, and wisdom, which is slower, but what makes something wise is the ability to see new parallels, new metaphors that help an individual to understand a particular problem because they can bring over information from another problem that they do understand and see how it applies. And so sometimes what the wise person does, what's characteristic of wise advice, is a way in which you can be helped to solve a problem that seems novel to you based on an analogy to a problem 
that you already understand. So what this means in respect of the point you touched on cognitive reserve, someone who has more of that attribute is able to see the same problem in a bunch of lights and therefore is able to compensate if one of the ways in which they've gotten used to understanding how things work or how things are related or how a given problem might be solved, if that becomes damaged or inefficient in some way, they have many other ways to get at the same solution. Well, that's very interesting. Now, um, uh, of course, the biggest question that's come out um, is what can we do? What are the lifestyle factors that you uh, want everybody to, to start incorporating? Um, and again, as you made very clear, we're not talking about a curative possibly delaying. We don't know, but when you're getting with the cardiovascular, you may be able to, I, I assume, uh, skirt around dementia. But um, you made it very clear that um, these are hopeful things that we can do, but not curative. So again, what do you want everyone to know to start incorporating into a, into a lifestyle? Well, if they could do one thing, it would be the exercise in groups. So, so that would seek to uh, combine two things which appear to have a reasonable foundation. One is uh, physical exercise, particularly aerobic exercise, um, and, and particularly that's where there's enough of it. So sort of five days a week at 45 to 60 minutes per day, somewhere around there is, is where you should aim for. And then the group bit being the social engagement that we have. So, so, so as, as humans, we're hardwired to understand our world by sharing it. We're hardwired to uh, understand what's happening around us by talking to other people about it. And just in the same way that we're hardwired to share our burdens by talking about them, um, it, 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 it goes beyond that. It, and you know, if you work in a university, it's really easy to see that. Sometimes you find yourself explaining things to students. And as you're saying it, you may actually be solving the problem in a new way for the first time yourself. So there's something about that ability to engage or the need to engage. And by the sometimes down, dumbfounded look on your student's face, that you realize, I have to come at this a different way. What I've set up to now is not working. So, so, so that type of rigorous problem-solving and thinking, which we you know, often associate in the stereotype with you know, solitary, deep thinking, that works for some people. Um, and it works for most people a little bit of the time, but most often you need to be able to uh, elaborate and discuss and, and engage in, in a conversation with someone else so as to understand what it is you're thinking. Well, you're just so, actually right there, if I can... Uh, I- I can't tell you the number of young people that complain to me about these group projects at university. So, I mean, there is a, a very good reason to have group projects within with your students and, and problem solving in the whole nine yards. Yeah, my experience is that the basis of the complaint for the group project is very often that you know, members of the group aren't pulling their share. Yeah. And that's problem solving skill as well. Mm-hmm. So there are ways to uh, deal with that. I'll just tell you as an aside... If I could teach one thing in healthcare, that would be it, is to how to uh, plainly state what you see a problem to be, because the default in healthcare is often passive-aggressive behavior, which simply means that the most passive-aggressive person gets their way, but I digress. 
That's okay. Um, now, before we move on to your next, um, your next thought, how, and this is just that something that's popped into my head, so excuse me, um, interaction, is this a face-to-face -face interaction, or do Facebook groups count and things like that, or do we need face-to-face, people-to-people interaction? So I really don't know. I don't know about this from a data standpoint. Okay. Um, I would imagine it's all good. I expect that there's something about face-to-face -face or hopefully ear-to-ear, mouth-to-ear. Um, so just a conversation, even with the person not sitting in front of you, that is uh, sufficiently more stimulating than writing it out and having it go out into the Twitterverse or some such. Mm -hmm. Okay. That being said, there is there is something about the discipline of having to put down what you actually think, uh, which is worthwhile. Though how often that that happens on Twitter, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure. Okay, fair enough. Um, okay, so moving beyond the face to face, the exercise, uh, next steps, and I think you talked about heart health and heart health relating to brain health. Yeah. So so we've had pretty good observational data for a while that what is good for the heart is good for the brain. In other words, uh, heart health goes with brain health for the most part. Um, but recently there have been some very interesting data. Now, I've only seen the presentation of it, so I haven't read the paper. And for scientists, that's there's often a gulf between the two. But looking at the data as they were presented in Chicago a few weeks ago, the American um, or the Alzheimer's Association International Conference, it looks like people with better blood pressure control, even in late life, are at a lower risk of progression from a stage of cognitive impairment which doesn't yet meet the dementia criteria to one that does. And, I, and that struck me as really uh, worthwhile, happy, useful news, a bit surprising for technical reasons. Nevertheless, uh, the optimist in me would want to see more about this and then see the extent to which the treatment of hypertension might be an analogy to the management of other risk factors. Okay, interesting. Very interesting, actually. Um, now, somebody has tweeted in and asked, one in three in your study, uh, what differentiates the one from the three? Uh, so um, it's like the hair loss ad, say your results may vary. Mm -hmm. So for an individual, any given intervention is likely to have only a small effect. And what we're looking at is the cumulative benefit from many small effects. So for example, when I see patients in clinic, particularly people who have at this stage of, of being at risk, um, so mild cognitive impairment, for example, um, there's a number of things we get them to engage in. And the general thing I say to them is, the magnitude of, of, of the difference this will make of any individual one is probably between 7 to 12% or so. Uh, but put them all together, do six or seven of those, and they're cumulative. Now, they may not be entirely additive, um, but you can still probably reduce the risk by half or more for an individual who engages in all of these things. Who are the people that are enrolled in these studies? Are they at a genetic risk for um, dementia? Is that how you have your group um, so, assembled? Yeah, so again, it depends. So the people who go into clinical trials, some of the clinical trials look for people at genetic risk in 
observational studies, we take everyone at baseline and then follow them through. So, for example, in the Canadian study of health and aging, which took place, started in the 1990s and went on for 10 or more years, um, we, we assembled people, we studied them in the first instance just based on the fact that they existed in the world wherever they age 65 uh, and so on. And then we we characterized a bunch of things that they might have um, with them, uh, several health attributes, several aspects of illness, performance on tests, and so on. And then we followed them through for up to 10 years, and we found out who during that time developed dementia and who didn't. And then we looked at the things that at baseline distinguished between the people who developed dementia from those who did not. And so that was a large study at its time. There's been many studies subsequent to that. And it's from the synthesis of all of that information that in the Lancet paper we tried to get to grips with what the risk factors might be and how modifiable they might be. Okay. I've just had someone uh, ask a question here. Is it an easy process with your GP, your general practitioner, to request testing to look for symptoms and a diagnosis? Um, So it depends. So it depends on your GP, what sort of practice they're in and what time they might have. I mean, family physicians are really overstretched by the models of care that we have for the most part. Now, sometimes in a clinic where there would be access to other healthcare professionals, then it's possible for someone to um, take the question seriously, be informed about it, do some of the testing, and so on, and follow up. That often is is a challenge, and I know through work with the Alzheimer's Society of Canada that it remains a very important challenge for people seeking care, which is that they find it really hard to get a diagnosis, or they find it even hard to get a referral to get a diagnosis. And so I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done on a population basis to make diagnosis uh, more readily available and also make testing more readily available so that people who are afraid of this but don't have an actual memory problem can be, or a pathological memory problem can be reassured. Okay. Now, this I only have a few minutes left here, but I, I want to know if you are able to address this in a, in a concise manner. Epigenetics and how these um, lifestyle factors what, what epigenetics is when using these lifestyle factors and influencing the genes that we have? And perhaps is this the greatest area that you're targeting? So let me say this. So let's go to first principles. So when a mommy and daddy love each other very much, they go to bed and cells divide. And we get half our genes from mom and half from dad. And the idea was that this was a fixed body of information, a fixed body of genes which really didn't change except on a very long time frame. And it now looks like things that parents do um, will have lasting influences. So I heard the phrase just recently that were formed in our grandmother's womb because that's where the eggs that our mother had came from. Um, so, So we know that genetic inheritance is more malleable than it used, than we used to think. And I think the reason to talk about epigenetics, and I'm at pains to point out we didn't really address this in the Lancet report, but the reason to talk about it is because it's an instance of things that are associated with aging and things that are literally baked into us that 
we would have to look at ways to overcome. And so, so, so the people like me who believe that dementia prevention is going to require a really broad-based approach to population health, the reason that we want to talk about this is not because we can modify it just now, but it, it's a better estimate of the scope of the problem or the scope of the challenge that we face, I think, than to imagine there's single-protein abnormalities. Mm-hmm. And it speaks very much to the idea that we need some investment in understanding how aging works if we're going to treat the diseases of aging. And we see this very plainly in uh, Alzheimer's disease because the standard dogma is that the most common cause of late-life dementia is Alzheimer's disease, and that's not true. It's not just Alzheimer's disease. It's Alzheimer's with other features, with other pathological features that often span into three or four diseases. And that's done in a background in which single interventions often are not successful because people have other things wrong which modify the way that they that the intervention works in them. You know, I was intrigued with the comment I heard you make about flaxseed in, in the intro. Uh, there is a randomized controlled trial, for example, which backs up some of the uh, points that you made about flaxseed and treatment of hypertension. There's animal work about uh, flaxseed and the way that uh, it changes the big blood vessels. So it may well be that there will be a combination of a number of things like this which would be invoked not necessarily because of a direct impact on Alzheimer's disease, but because of the way in which they could help us with the common diseases of aging. And it may well be that the best approach on a population basis is going to be to understand the contribution of the common diseases of aging to what happens to the aging brain. Thank you very much for that. I think that's a great uh, way to end off. Um, and I think you, you said to me at one point in one of our conversations that um, we have to be realistic in our expectations, but we also have some power within our genes. And I think it's a good way to end off the show here. Um, you can reach and follow Dr. Rockwood. His Twitter account is at KRockDoc. Uh, any other ways that people can reach you, Dr. Rockwood? Yeah, the Twitter's pretty good. Way pretty to good. Find out what I'm thinking. Okay, so you can follow him there. I thank you so much uh, for your time. It's been a fascinating show. And everybody, we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. Hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.